Hi, and welcome to Marking the Role. My name's Phil Dye. Marking the Role is a podcast for teachers, educators everywhere, and parents, of course, anyone interested in education. We're based in the Illawarra area of Australia, which, if you're overseas, it's on the east coast. It's about uh, 100k, uh, a little bit less than that, south of Sydney. Now, this is episode 21 and the final episode for 2022. Our last episode was two weeks ago and it was on the rise of gender dysphoria in Australian schools. Now, we had lots of comments to that and I'll be honest with you that before we did this episode, I was told not to do it because I would be hounded down by activists and it would make my life hell. Well, the truth is that didn't happen. There was only one negative email, and that was from London. It was certainly no one from Australia. But there was lots and lots of positive feedback supporting the point of view that um, it was fine for people to transition genders, um, but it was not fine for that to happen for school children, uh, school students, that once you're 18, you could do whatever you like, and that's fine, and But um, it really is not good for school students, and that was backed up by medical evidence, which, by the way, I checked on after I'd spoken to Professor John Whitehall, and I went and uh, ploughed my way (laughs) through difficult scientific papers and discovered that, yes, what he said was correct. But the amazing amount of support that uh, this program received was from the LGBTQI community. Uh, Yes, there were some just teachers who were positive, but there was lots and lots from the rainbow community who were very, very supportive. It seems that the T letter in the rainbow flag uh, is not altogether on this issue. Um, that there are many, many uh, transitioners and other members of the the rainbow community who are very much against transitioning for um, students, for anyone under the age of 18. Um, And this is um, backed up also by the number of D-transitioners, those who have been through it even had the double mastectomy, as in the case of Lucas or Bunny in episode 20, and then say, no, this was all a mistake. This has not fixed the uh, psychological problems that I had, usually as a result of the trauma that I experienced as a child. So, um, look, we're going to be looking at that a lot more uh, at the end of this episode. Now, just on one other thing. We've only had uh, memberships and supporters and donors of the podcast, but we've realised we can't survive in 2023 on that because it doesn't go anywhere near paying the bills. So um, we're going to be having one one, uh, sponsor uh, per episode. So if anyone knows of a, a sponsor, someone whose product or service really does Uh, appeal to the education and teaching community please let us know (laughs) because um, it'll save us going and looking for us for a sponsor for each episode and if you think someone's interested just get them to email um, markingtherole at gmail.com markingtherole at 
gmail.com if you think that there's a potential sponsor somewhere in the wind and you'd like to name them and uh, they can give us a call that way what is this episode going to be on well we have um looked at the top five podcasts of this year how did we do that well we looked at how many uh, downloads each uh, episode had had and divided it by the number of weeks that that podcast had been out. Now, of course, the most downloads was uh, the first one, which was um, about how teaching has changed. But um, that was had to be divided by 30 because there was 30 weeks in that. Um, so that wasn't the number one. So we have five episodes that we're looking at more in depth and adding a little bit more information. Um, the first one is going to be uh, the rise of inclusive education and how Australian um, education inclusion and behaviour policies fail the social validity test. So we'll be looking at that. We'll be looking at leaving the field. We'll be looking at trauma-informed teaching, again, with a little bit more information. And the final one, will be on the rise of gender dysphoria in Australian schools because there is more information on that and and some of the support that we've received. And also at the end, the very end of this podcast, we'll be drawing the winners of the Chasing Normal book by uh, Beck Thompson. There'll be two of those books um, that are given to the people who have made donations or have become members of our podcast. Now, the first of the episodes that we'll look at, and this was the fifth most popular episode, was the one on how Australian behaviour and inclusion policies fail the social validity test. And uh, I thought to start this small five-minute conversation, we'll have a listen to this. I think, um, you know, you put a te- one teacher in front of 30 children and you could have half of those students with certain needs, whether that be them being on the autism spectrum, having ADHD, ODD, mental health concerns, um, anxiety. You, you put that in the mix. How is one person meant to manage all of that? And even if that classroom is fortunate enough to have a support officer in there, I still don't believe that's adequate. That was from Becca, a special needs teacher. And what about this one? Yeah, and if you've got children with special needs, you know, which, and it's every parent's right to place their children in a mainstream classroom, but if there's a, a child in your class who has special needs and you don't have any support from a teacher's aide or something like that, you know, the interruptions that occur in the classroom are just amazing because the teacher's attention is often having to focus on that child with the special needs. And what about this from the Parliament of Australia, Parliamentary Business, Chapter 3, Integration and Inclusion, 2002. I know that's a little bit old, but it's still more modern than the inclusion policies internationally. The committee scarcely received any evidence to suggest that segregation of students with disabilities should be the normal learning experience, except in circumstances of serious disability in which the student poses a danger or a likelihood of interference with the learning of other students. 
So, according to parliamentary notes, any student that causes an interference to the learning of other students can be excluded. So, as you all know, there's been new behaviour and inclusion policies introduced um, into schools across Australia. Um, Now, whether those policies have what's called social validity was a big topic um, in episode 15. Because in in the research that was conducted in order to formulate these policies, um, there was a review done by Professor Ivor Stranadova, uh, Professor in Special Education and Disability Studies from the University of New South Wales. Now, the first question is, um, a professor in special education and disability studies will always take the side of their speciality, which is special education and disability. So you would expect any research to come down on the side of that special student cohort. But a couple of things were mentioned in that uh, research that really most departments tried to overlook. And one of the comments was that uh, while it may be identified as a practice that is highly likely to improve a specific outcome of a target student population, i.e. those with a disability, uh, in a particular context, it will not work for all targeted students. So what they're saying is that not all students with a disability are the same, and to treat them all the same is wrong. And that is exactly what the education departments across Australia have done to treat all students with a disability the same, that any student with a disability can go into a mainstream class and uh, we'll deal with that and the teacher has to teach them. Now, most students with a disability are fine in a mainstream class, absolutely fine, but there are some that can't be in a mainstream class. Yet I know Tasmania, for example, is trying to get everybody into mainstream classes. I don't know what sort of blind ideology they're following, but anyway, Tasmania is doing it their way. Um, So this has been a major bone of contention. Now, another very important paragraph that was missed out, seemingly, in in forming these policies, is that, uh, and I quote this, furthermore, There is growing recognition highlighted especially by people with disability that any practice used to support people with disability needs to be not only evidence-based, it also needs to have social validity. The concept of social validity measures the overall acceptability of an intervention beyond treatment effectiveness. And there's a reference to strain This can be done by asking opinions about the practice of the people who are implementing, receiving and consenting to it. Now, in all of my discussions with teachers and principals, it seems that uh, the mainstream teacher, the mainstream principal, was not consulted on all of this. There is actually only 84 individuals who were consulted. Uh, and they were mainly from the disability community. Now, the fact that the disabled community recognises that that we have to have this social validity. Teachers have got to be say, OK, yes, I can do that. I think we that's possible. We can do that in a mainstream class. But, of course, they weren't asked. So um, this idea of social validity is a big one, that 
These policies have been introduced throughout Australia uh, without social validity. And um, in episode 15, uh, I suggested that all new policies being be put on hold so that there can be research into social validity, not only with teachers and principals in mainstream schools, but with uh, parents of uh, all students in mainstream schools. Because uh, as Peter Collins, the retired principal, had to say, uh, it doesn't make for an equal playing field. I know that there seems to be a swing away from special classes or even special schools. Now, I've been at a school where we've had special classes, you know, for autism or for behaviour, etc. And, you know, as there's a lot of work goes into getting children placed in those classes. Um, and that's often the best place for them because you're down to a, a very small ratio as far as students to teachers concerned. You also have a teacher's aid. If, however, those students are still in the main mainstream classroom, well, that's when it becomes this issue that I've just mentioned, where the teacher's attention is taken away from all of the kids in the class. So they're missing out. And what about behaviour policies then? Another teacher had this to say. Anyway, I have two very challenging grade eight classes. And at the beginning of the year, I would get sworn at every class. Like, there wouldn't be one day where I would go home without being sworn at, being called words that I won't repeat on the um, on the air. And that's just one story. So we know that teachers all over Australia are encountering more and more behaviour problems um, with with students. But the behaviour policies that have been introduced really uh, cut back on how a teacher can hold a student accountable. In some states, detentions have been banned. In others, suspensions have been limited or made very difficult to get approval for. So what's happening is that students aren't being held accountable. It's as if there's no social expectations as to what um, constitutes good behaviour or bad behaviour. It's also that seemingly with individual learning plans, we have individual behaviour expectations. And even students with things like ADHD, oppositional behaviour disorder, um, a student with autism who can be very loud and abusive, a student who uh, identifies themselves as being neurodiverse, the Indigenous child who uh, has perhaps a, a difficult home life, it seems that there are different expectations of their behaviour. And the ideology behind these behaviour policies, no matter how well-meaning, are really letting the students down. I'm going to leave the last words on this particular section to Catherine Burblesing, the principal of the Michaela School in the UK. And this audio thanks to the Centre for Independent Studies.
And of course, the children who most suffer because of this are the most disadvantaged. They're the ones that come from minority backgrounds, come from poorer backgrounds and so on. And the reason why they suffer the most is because they are entirely dependent on their school to be able to make that difference for them. So if you come from a more well-off family, the family can make up that difference. The family takes you to museums on the weekend. They have dinners around the dinner table and talk about the politics of the day. They take you away on holiday to various places. But the child that comes from a poorer family, they don't have that. They're dependent entirely on their school and on their teachers. And if their teachers, through what they believe to be compassion, are constantly letting that child down by not holding them to account, that child has nowhere to go. And in the end, they end up in prison, they end up on welfare, they end up in some dead-end job. And then we say, well, they were poor. What else could they do? But it's not true. <laughs> it's us who have failed them. We in the education sector have failed them. Well, that was an overview and some extras from episode 15. And now we get to the the, the fourth most popular one, and that was the one on leaving the field. And rather than me explain it all, um, I think I'll let someone who has just resigned from teaching, John Grant, tell us a little bit about why he left the field. And don't worry, John Grant is not his real name, and uh, his voice has been significantly altered, as you will hear. John, what caused this resignation? What was the straw that finally broke the camel's back? I think it's the relentless uh, amount of change that's coming down from the top. It's the overwhelming uh, data-driven, compliance-driven covering of butts left, right and centre. So every time somebody mucks up in the department somewhere, Uh, We get a new policy, we get a new uh, set of things that teachers have to do and it's just more and more and more and more all the time. So there's a big disconnect between those making those decisions and those with their feet on the ground, it seems, because even what the department introduces doesn't work. Absolutely. Um, We seem to keep getting... Um, you know, new things that they have taken from uh, overseas where they haven't worked over there and they're brought back in here. Uh, All the things that teachers are telling the government, uh, they seem to then go and do the opposite. I mean, the ridiculousness of uh, your teacher standing up and saying, yeah, look, we spent all this time on on ticking boxes and uh, compliance and things that don't actually make any difference to any kid anywhere that we don't have time to plan our own lessons. There seems to be, um, well, there's a lot of discussion about those people who are employed in the Department of Education and the agencies that surround it, that they simply are too far removed from real life as to what's going on out there. Would Would you say that that's the case? Uh, Indeed. Uh, It's my understanding that, you know, in most of the upper echelons of the department, uh, uh, they aren't teachers and haven't ever been teachers or haven't been teachers for an extremely long period of time. 
So, you know, it's that sort of thing again of everybody's been at school, so we're all experts about what school's like, but it's, it's you know, it's so nuanced and, and different and, um, you know, trying to meet the needs of kids in a 2022 is extremely different from, you know, what people would have experienced when they were at school. Do you think it's possible that if there is a change of state government that things will also change or do you think it's too too embedded? Um, look, I think if you really want it to, to change, you get better. It's, it's a cultural shift and culture is very difficult to change. Um, I think these days, unfortunately, you know, both sides of politics are fairly similar. Uh, yeah, Labor politicians uh, can be just as good at uh, you know, knowing everything as Liberal politicians. Uh, I would like to think that a Labor government uh, would make some changes. They're, they're, I can see yeah, from what I've read in the media that they've made some commitments to um, yeah, doing things differently. But you know, I also know that they're, they're wanting to continue some of the things that you know, probably most of us would say don't work. How's the new behaviour policy going for you? A nightmare. Uh, meetings, 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 meetings. Yep, yep, yep. That's what I've heard. That it's simply adding to the to the list of meetings that teachers have got to attend. Um, and often you're meeting with parents who aren't terribly um, uh, terribly great communicators. That's how I'll put it. And, you know, you suspend a kid for a couple of days for, you know, hitting another kid, the parent's not going to want to come up to the school two or three times over the course of that uh, those couple of days. No, no, no. Um, John Grant, you've been uh, in the Department of Education for 29, 30 years. Uh, you're not going to be there come the end of January. What are you going to do with yourself? Uh, I'm actually moving into a a different school system and taking a job in there that pays me more money is closer to home and um, ends up with a lot less bureaucracy you are echoing the moves of many teachers who have worked for the department of education yeah we're just we're just trying to you know get a bit more um yeah, working a bit better balance in our work and family life. Look, John Grant, uh, thank you for talking to us and um, good luck in the future. Cheers. And while uh, on leaving the field, teachers can go into all sorts of work these days, it seems that a lot of them are doing exactly what John has done, and that is to go into a different school system uh, that has more flexibility uh, that doesn't have the, the harsh ideology behind it that perhaps a government school has. And now it's time for a brain break. All of our brain breaks are from musicians or bands in the Illawarra. This one's no exception. This is from Stuart Alexander. Now, Stuart has been around the Illawarra music scene for a long time. He writes a lot of his own songs, and there's also some songs from Bill Chambers. Um, only available on Bandcamp. Here's uh, one of his great tracks, Lies, Lies.
Don't you go and walk away It didn't mean much anyway You talk and talk, it goes nowhere It's in the way you stare Lies, lies, dirty old lies Out of the frying pan into the fire There's too much time, too much desire Out of the frying pan into the fire you Turn around, look me in the eye The scars run deep and wide It's all you do It's over There's nothing to lose Ain't got nothing to lose Lies, lies, dirty old lies Out of the frying pan into the fire Much time, too much desire. Out of the frying pan, into the fire, into the fire. Stuart Alexander with his song Lies. Lies only available on Bandcamp. Um, and if you don't know where to get that from, just go to markingtheroll.com.au, look up Brain Breaks. In season three, you'll find that and you'll, there's a link there to the Bandcamp site. Stuart Alexander. Now we've had the fifth most listened to, the fourth most listened to. Now 
the second and third most listened to podcasts which were on trauma-informed teaching. The first one, uh, which was um, episode 18, interview with Beck Thompson, teacher who had experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse and how that impacted her life. The, uh, the next in that series was with Tom Brunzel from the Berry Street Education Model. Both of those were extremely popular, scores of 53.6 and 77. I realise you're probably not familiar with podcast scores, but 77 is very good. What we didn't have in those two interviews was an interview with a teacher um, who has the trauma-informed teaching model operating in their school. And for that, I had the pleasure of talking to Leanne Faint. Leanne is the principal of the Corinity Education School, Southside, in Queensland. Um, So I asked her first to talk about the Corinity Education Southside School and how different it was from other mainstream high schools. Um, so Southside is a special assistance school. So special assistance schools are se- is a sector for disengaged youth. And we're one of the only all-girls special assistance school and we have um, an early learning centre on site <clears throat> as well. Um, and it was originally set up for young people who, um, mainly First Nations girls, who were out of the education system entirely, often part of the juvenile justice system. Um, Often they had children, so we had um, the adjunct creche at that point. So it was really targeting those very, very vulnerable young women. And what's the average class size there? Um, Because attendance is not as high as we would like it over the 90% mark, um, we normally sit around 15 to 20 girls in a classroom each day. Your staff, I imagine, are very highly trained in trauma-informed teaching. All of our staff are trained, and that includes our um, IT guy, our office ladies, in um, therapeutic crisis intervention. So TCI, it is um, a course owned by Cornell University. So we have two staff on um, who are trained trainers in TCI, and then they come back and we do um, regular training and refreshing. How did the staff initially respond to being introduced to trauma-informed teaching? I think you'll find generally a lot of the staff that come to a school like this are feeling some sense of frustration in the big mainstream system where they see that there's these young people who are either damaged or hurting or have issues and it's very hard to manage that well in a big mainstream school. So they're actually looking for an alternate to being able to go that extra mile to be able to provide that holistic support for these young people. Um, so they're kind of looking for that when they come in. I can imagine. But in your school with 15 and the average class, I guess the teachers have got a lot more time to, to, to use this sort of approach. Yeah, most definitely. And plus we also have a youth worker in every um, year-level room. So so there's sort of three things that need to take place in um, a school where you have young people with trauma, and that is the school itself has to be a safe place. There has to be strong relationships, so relationship is key, 
and then staff have to co-regulate with students. So most of these young people have, um, or a lot of them have attachment issues. They don't know how to self-soothe and self-regulate and they need that adult to co-regulate their emotions with them to get them back to baseline. And some teachers come here and, and they're, um, they're focused on those academic outcomes because that's what most schools are focused on. Oh, I've got to get these outcomes. I've got to get these outcomes. You know, I can't get any work out of the student. Yes, but this student is at school four out of five days a week for the first time in two years. She might not be doing any work. So we really have to change that mindset um, when they come to us of we measure success differently. But realistically, Leanne, they could measure that success differently in mainstream schools as well because, you know, this constant searching for data and for results doesn't work uh, in many schools. I 200% agree with you on that, yes. But when you're tied up in a big system and you've got your your supervisors breathing down your neck, that's hard, isn't it? It, It's a really hard call for teachers and to give, um, you know, big schools credit it's hard for deputies and principals as well when they've got region breathing down their neck. There's a, there's a great deal of, I think, frustration and we're living in a, quite a, a broken society at the moment. Um, the internet has not been the, you know, having a phone in front of you 24-7 has not been great for our young people. Mental health is down and mental health is down for everyone, particularly with the pandemic. It, it's just, yeah... It's a tough time for teachers. Leanne, after the first two episodes we had on trauma-informed teaching, I had several emails from teachers saying that, that yes, that they certainly liked um, using the trauma-informed teaching skills and, and modifying their own language and their own behaviour, their own actions, but they were very frustrated that many of the students had ongoing trauma uh, that they are experiencing, which is contributing to their either poor behaviour or their inability to learn, but they couldn't do anything mm-hmm. about this ongoing trauma the kids were experiencing at home, um, often due to a relative. Now, how do you get across that? And that's really, really hard. Um, I don't know what other schools my size, so we're about 120 students, so we do lots of child safety notifications. But if that doesn't happen at the other end, then if they're not getting that intensive family support or child safety isn't stepping in or anything like that, it's about supporting them when they're here. But that can be terribly frustrating for the teacher, couldn't it? Oh, terribly so, yes. We tend to protect a lot of our teachers. They don't necessarily know what is happening for these young people. They know something is happening. So we have a a morning briefing, whole staff briefing every morning, and we might say, um, Betty Jo is having a hard time at the moment. You need to be aware of that. It's it's tricky. Now, I was very impressed with this, the RAW, the Real Active Women program that you've got in the school. Can you just tell us about that? Well, most schools have sort of a um, Wednesday afternoon sport. We don't have the A, the facilities, or B, a lot of these young people aren't that interested in that. So we have lots of different um, 
activities that we rotate through on a Wednesday afternoon. So we sometimes have people come in to do um, dance or singing or hip-hop. We have a sewing circle. We have visitors um, coming in working with the girls. We have some sports, depending on what um, term of the year it is, swimming, swimming's term four and term one, um, and just gives them opportunities to experience some of those things that they don't normally get to experience. You also provide lunch for the students. Yes, breakfast and lunch. So um, breakfast is sponsored by YMCA, so we're in partnership with them. And lunch, we have a hot lunch every day. Now, this is another thing, Leanne, which should I think should be in every school. Because if they're, if they're hungry, if their basic needs are not met, it's Maslow before Bloom every single time. Absolutely, yeah. it is. And... Eating, my background is in neuroscience and I'm a neuroscience educator by second trade. Um, And when people eat, they go into a a zone called theta, which is the zone when they will remember things that are told to them. So it's a matter of putting their brain electricity down by putting them into theta. And one of the ways they do that is eating. And the other way Mm. is exercise. So, um, yeah, that's terrific. You're doing it well there. Now, look, uh, finally, while um, trauma-informed teaching is absolutely essential in, in, in Carinity Education Southside, do you think that every teacher should have this sort of background? Yes. So I, I believe trauma-informed teaching should be part of every um, pre-service course. Last year, I had the opportunity to do the graduate certificate in trauma-informed education at QUT, world-class course, absolutely loved it, but it should be in all pre-service training. And that was Leanne Faint, the principal of Carinity Education Southside, someone who's very, very passionate about trauma-informed teaching. Um, And that was a little bit of an addition to our uh, episode 18 and 19. I'm not quite sure about that little bit of a sting. Anyway, now we're up to the number one episode uh, from this year. Uh, The episode that has had more listeners than any other episode. The episode that scored 134 points in our special um, episode algorithm. And that was the rise of gender dysphoria in Australian schools. And as I said earlier on, I expected lots of flack from this. I got none. Well, I got one from England. Everyone was extremely supportive. And most of the support came from the LGBTI community. Um, But there must be some element of the the T, the transition um, community, that is really pushing for um, gender transitioning in school-aged children um, because it would seem that most are not in favour of that. As we heard in episode 20, uh, a lot of gender dysphoria of the desire to change gender is due to childhood trauma and it seems like that trauma is not being addressed and a lot of medical professionals are simply going for the gender transitioning, administering Um, puberty blockers and hormones before looking at the actual cause of that discontent 
in the child. Uh, and this is what teachers are worried about, that children have become medicalised uh, from a very young age. And I heard today, just today, that there is a, a young woman at 16 who is transitioning in this country who had her uterus removed um, as part of the transition process. Now, this is just awful, I think. Um, but not only do I think it, there's members of the LGBTIQ community who also think it's awful. Now, I had mentioned in episode 20 that I'd asked uh, the Melbourne Children's Hospital for comment and they wouldn't comment um, or come on to the podcast. I also asked the Maple Leaf House in Newcastle. Uh, they said that they were going to get back to me most definitely uh, with someone to talk, but they didn't. So it seems it's a bit of a closed shop. No one wants to talk about it from the medical side or the social side of it. Um, but uh, I did manage to get um, some audio from Chloe Cole. Chloe Cole, um, uh, Chloe transitioned from a very young age uh, and now is detransitioning because uh, transitioning did not address the problems that she was experiencing in her life. This is um, uh, a courtesy of The Daily Caller. If you wanted to see the full interview, it's on YouTube. Just look up Chloe Cole, Daily Caller. Over the past decade, there has been as high as a 4,000% increase in children being referred to so-called gender clinics across the United States. I was one of these children. My name is Chloe Cole and I am an 18-year-old former transgender child. I transitioned from the age of 12 up until 16 when I realized it all was a lie. My story is cautionary tale. Children and parents across the country have been caught off guard by gender ideology. Discussions about gender, transgenderism and gender identity went from being a relatively benign social oddity to a doctrine that has invaded nearly every academic, medical, and educational institution seemingly overnight. How did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where nearly every pediatric institution in the country considers it best practice to remove the healthy breast tissue of children while administering drugs typically used to chemically castrate high-risk sex offenders? Strong stuff, isn't it? And I did look up um, all about uh, puberty blockers, as I said, and yes, it is true that the uh, studies have indicated some um, irreversible brain changes. Now, why did we get supporting messages from the LGBTIQ community? Well, the messages were along the lines that um, it's only the T community that have puberty blockers, hormones and surgical intervention. All of the others don't have that. It's a matter of choice. Um, so it is this matter of surgical intervention, the administration of hormones um, and of puberty blockers that are the real problem. Sure, if someone is 18, 19, 20, older, they can do whatever they like. But for school school age students, um, I think it's a very big call. Now, I want you to imagine that you've got a sinus infection and as a result of that you've got a really itchy nose 
And you go to the doctor and you say, look, I've got a really itchy nose, doctor, and I don't, I don't know what to do about this. You don't know you've got a sinus infection. It's just there. Um, and the doctor says, oh, you've got an itchy nose. Look, let's say we do some cosmetic surgery uh, and refashion your nose, and I'll give you some drugs to stop the itch. Um, how about that? And you say, oh, okay, well, that'll do. Um, I'll have the operation and I'll take the drugs. Um, but... They do not investigate the underlying sinus infection. And this is exactly what's happening with gender transitioning with teenagers. That doctors are profiting from doing the procedures and and administering the drugs without looking at the underlying cause, which overwhelmingly is childhood trauma in its many forms. Now, what can teachers do about this? Not much, really. Um, But I did ring up the Child Protection Unit and if a teacher feels that uh, this student is gender transitioning because of a trauma, childhood trauma, and if the teacher feels that that trauma is ongoing, so uh, it's not trauma that happened 10 years ago, that, that, that perhaps that child is still being abused, physically abused, that they're being neglected, that they're being sexually abused... Um, if it's ongoing, then they can go to their principal and tell them. And as mandatory reporters, the principal then has to call the Child Protection Unit, who hopefully will act. Now, if still nothing happens, the Child Protection Unit said that teachers could call the Child Protection Unit themselves. And I said, well, A lot of teachers don't want to actually be named because um, it'll get back to the department and the department will come at them and say, look, you shouldn't have done this. And the protection agency said that you don't have to. You'll be asked a question. Do you give consent for your details to be shared with the police and the agencies connected with your work? You can say yes to the police if you want to, but say no when it comes to the other agencies. And in that way, your your identity will be kept a secret. Now, this goes for other trauma that you might see. If the child is not gender transitioning, they're just, you just feel like they're in a traumatic environment at home and that trauma is ongoing, um, or the cause of the trauma is ongoing, then you can do the same. One, three, two, triple one. Uh, teachers uh, can call and your identity will be kept secret. For parents who are confronted with this, and and I really do feel sorry for you, um, it seems that going to the gender clinics, they're going to be steered, you're going to be steered in in a certain way, certainly towards gender transitioning. Go to a normal psychologist, um, not a gender specialist. Go to a normal one, uh, and they may be able to assist more by looking at the cause of this wish to transition. And finally, members of the LGBTQI community can actually also have a say um, and perhaps urge members of the the transition community or certainly the activists and the spokespeople to reconsider their position and to reconsider the influence that they have on government uh, in the media and their influence on vulnerable school children. (laughs) 
So that rounds off our extras for the top five episodes for 2022. One last thing we have to do before we sign off for the year is that we have to get the winners of the book by Beck Thompson, Chasing Normal. And we did this live in the studio the other day, and this is how it went. Uh, Lee Louise, our producer, is going to draw the first lot, which is from the donors, the donors we've had over the last, um, you know, six to eight weeks. Lee, reach into the cup. Yeah. It's an orange 24. N- no, that's from the meat raffle at the club <gasps> last week. Now, of course. Of course. Wrong, wrong cup, cup. Wrong, wrong cup. cup. Into the market. Okay, here we go. Cup. Marking the roll. Pulling out a... Esna. Esna. I can't say the last name because most a lot of people don't want their last names mentioned. So it's Esna. You have won a copy of Tracing Normal by Beck Thompson. Yay! Very good. Now, we have the people who are members. Please. Yes. Frantically pulling out. Frantically pulling out the... The winner. And it is a Valma. Valma C. Valma C. She is the winner. Thank you very much for everyone who has um, donated or or become a member over the last uh, six to eight weeks. And that's how it went. I hope the lottery office doesn't contact us. Um, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank uh, our supporters, donors, members uh, who have come on board with us in 2022. As I mentioned at the start of this, it's financially not easy for us. Um, So if you know anyone who'd like to sponsor us in 2023, please let us know. Uh, If you would like to be a member or a a donor, just go to markingtherole.com.au and click on the little yellow coffee cup and you'll have some options there as to um, how to actually donate uh, $5 or more or become a member of the podcast. Uh, Lee and I would like to wish you a very happy holiday season. Um, you've certainly earned a holiday, teachers. And uh, let's hope next year is a lot smoother than 2022. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>